Hey, thank you for tuning in to the Fountain Podcast. We pray that this message blesses you and helps you to see Jesus clearly, love him deeply, and follow him wholeheartedly. Let's dive in. I want to I speak to you today around this idea of imagine more faith in God's ways, in God's ways. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. As we open up your word today, we are expecting, we are believing, God, that you're going to speak to us in a way that only you can. Lord, you know where each of us, you know where each one of us is at today, Lord, and I just ask that you would meet us there. Holy Spirit, that you would come and illuminate our hearts and our minds to the beauty and the reality of Jesus. And that, God, that your word would penetrate. I thank you that it's alive and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. Oh, God, how much we need your word today. So, God, speak to us. Our ears are open. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen, amen, and amen. Well, I don't know if any of you have traveled. Anybody travel recently? Well, so expensive to travel these days, isn't it? But, but if, if you know, it's, it can be a little bit harder to catch a flight these days. It's been a little chaotic. They said on any given weekend, 15,000 flights can be delayed and 1,000 canceled. That's a, that's a lot. I, I've never seen this happen in all of my 42 years, about to be 43. Um, but but what's, what's kind of what's interesting is I did some research on this because I was just a little bit fascinated. I, anytime things are going wrong, I kind of dive in. I want to know why. What's happening? What's going on? Why is this going the way that it's going? And, and I came across a, a girl by the name of Sarah, and I came across her story. And uh, it was one of those tragic I miss my flight type of stories. My flight was canceled, delayed, like all of the above. And she was trying to catch a flight from Chicago to New York. And she wanted to use an airline that uh, she enjoys, but they didn't have that particular flight. So she reluctantly went with an airline that lost her luggage five years prior. So she was a little bit hesitant. I'm not going to say who that airline is. But Delta, they, they, uh, (laughs) I'll just get it. It wasn't Delta. I'll just mess with you. Um, but she, she ended up getting on the, on, on the flight, true story, and it said that the flight was over, overfueled, so she had to, they had to deboard. And they said, don't worry, we're going to get you a connecting flight, uh, we're going to get you another flight, and, and you're going to be fine. Well, that flight got d- delayed, and then her connecting flight got canceled. This is recently, this is like a few weeks ago. Her connecting flight got canceled, and then she spent, you know, overnight still in Chicago, and she spent 10 hours on the phone the next day to customer service, only at the end of that 10 hours to lose, to get disconnected. Anybody ever been there? Is that not the worst? And like the bank or the airlines, you're waiting forever, and she gets disconnected. And so needless to say, she didn't make it to New York. She was stuck. And God has called you and I to live in in a posture of movement, never in a posture of stuck. He's called us to higher altitudes. The Bible says very clearly, we looked at this passage in our At The Movie series, but I want to dive into it one more time. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. 
As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So I, I did a little bit of homework on Sarah's trip. And what I discovered was that Sarah could have actually drove. Like there was another vehicle available. And the, the drive from Chicago to NYC to where she was going would have been about 10 hours. So she could have saved a full day, got to her destination. It might have seemed a little bit longer, a little bit harder, but it would have got her there further faster. And I think when it comes to God's way, sometimes it can be hard to see. Sometimes we kind of have a, our mind set on one particular way and God has other ideas. I like to say it like this, is that God's way will always get you further faster, even though it may feel harder and longer. Because you, you look throughout the scripture, especially going back to Egypt when God delivered his people out of slavery, they had to learn God's ways. They were stuck in an Egypt mentality, in a slave mentality. All they, all they knew their whole life was stuck. And so now God has delivered them miraculously, powerfully, but they still had to learn his ways. They had to learn how God provides. They had to learn his power and protection. They had to learn his ways of fighting battles. They had to learn his, his character and his design for life, how life is best lived. And so before they got to their destination, the land, the promised land, the land of promise, they had to go through the desert. Sometimes there's a desert before the destination because God is wanting to show us some things. God is wanting to reveal himself in a way that we're going to need for the future. So unfortunately, these guys, even though positionally they were out of Egypt, they were still spiritually stuck. So a journey that could have taken 11 days turned into 40 years. And God was like, it, it didn't have to be like that. Now, God was still faithful throughout all of those 40 years, but a generation had to pass away before they could actually enter into the land. And so it's in these moments of stuck that God always shows up and says, I have another vehicle. He says, I have a vehicle. Moses, you have the sea in front of you and you have the army behind you. But I have a vehicle for that. Will you stretch out your hand and watch me part the sea? Joshua, he's looking at a fortified city. And he's thinking to himself, well, how in the world are we going to tackle this thing? And the Lord says, I have a way for it. I have a vehicle. Get on your knees and worship, and I'm going to give you a revelation on how to take this city. Esther, an entire genocide of people is on the line, and she has to go to the king, but without being summoned, the result is normally death. And God says, I know, but I have a way for that. Once you fast and pray, trust me and go to the king. The disciples, Jesus tells them to feed the 5,000 with just a, a couple of fish and a few loaves, and and they're looking at Jesus like, how in the world are we going to do this? And Jesus says, I have a vehicle for that. Go ahead and give it to me. And you're going to watch my miraculous provision. Paul is in prison, shackled. And the Lord's like, hey, I know you're in prison, but I got a vehicle for that. You can be in prison, but you don't have to be stuck. Like, like I'm going to use you to write letters that will be used as my word throughout generations. The world's not going to be able to keep you stuck in prison when you're liberated internally. I have a vehicle of joy for you, Paul. I have an instrument 
to get the gospel out, the world will never be able to shackle you nor the gospel. I have a vehicle. I have a way. And then, then you look at us just coming to Fountain Church, looking at us coming here to Fountain. It, it, was, it was super scary for us, and we weren't exactly sure how everything was going to work out. And God says, I, I have a way. I have a vehicle for you. And he gave us Isaiah chapter 43, verses 18 and 19, that says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. I am making a way in the wilderness, streams in the desert and rivers in the wasteland. See, see what these patriarchs were or, or learned that you and I are still learning is this beautiful reality that true solutions to our problems require God's providence. And providence is just a fancy word for God's divine guidance and care. Like we desperately need God's ways. The problem is, is sometimes God may have these vehicles, God may have these ways, but it can be really hard to see them at times. Sometimes we're, we're trying to look at God's word and it's just a little blurry. We're like, ah, I just, ah, I can't really, I'm going to need my glasses. I got my glasses on. I still can't really see. It's because when you're stuck, your vision can get blurred really quick. You can get spiritually disillusioned by your circumstances and you become vulnerable to deception. That's why a lot of times you don't see people in, um, actually, let me save that for a moment. Let me tell you what I mean. Let me tell you what I mean by stuck. It's not going to be an exhaustive list, but it's some big rocks that I think will help us to see a little bit more clearly. And it's just, it's really hard to see when you're stuck in sin. A lot of times we think about sin, we think about the big sins, sexual immorality, stealing, murdering. But what about gossip? What about your little spiritual gossip? Put a little cover on it. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, oh, we really need to pray for her. Jesus, come, Lord. Right? Like, what about, what about pride? Spiritual arrogance, where you're just God's gift to everybody. Like, you know all things. Like, you should, there's like Jesus, then there's you. It's like, like, you are lucky I am present in your life right now. Can I tell you, if you're the smartest, if you're always the smartest person in the room, find another room. Because you're never going to grow. What about bitterness? Stuck in a posture of bitterness or knowing what's right but not doing it, James says, that is sin. What about a lack of contentment, gluttony, envy? Like, we just don't think about that stuff a lot. Sometimes we live there, but it just doesn't seem that bad. It's, it's really hard to see because what, what happens with sin is, is sin builds walls in between you and God. It, it creates a disconnection. Isaiah 59 says it this way, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, nor his ear dull that he cannot hear, but your sins have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Like even when we're at odds in our marriage, it can hinder that connection. Like, that's scary. Like, how many of us actually think that? Like, I'm so mad at you. And in this place, God is like, yep, I ain't listening. And how many of us live our lives in a posture of stuck because of sin? God is saying, I have a vehicle for all these different things in your life. And you're just like, no. It's, it's, it's hard to see when you're stuck in sin. It's also hard to see when you're stuck in a storm. Like things may be going well, and then you're blindsided. 
or there's been perpetual issues going on and you're just exhausted. And there's a sense of you that can't believe that God is letting this happen to you. And you start to become disillusioned because at one time you thought God was good and loving, but now you're not quite sure about that anymore. Your perspective is shifting. There, there was a, a big tanker, actually the largest tanker in the world, found itself caught in a storm. This is not too long ago. And it was passing through one of the, the channels in, in Egypt. Now, Egypt has some pretty brutal sandstorms. And the canals that these ships have to pass through would blow your mind because they're so small. And so on this particular occasion, the ship, even though there was warnings and they knew that there was going to be some difficulty, the ship continued to proceed this is, again, the world's biggest cargo ship. There's 300 ships behind it. And this desert wind hit, and in just a given moment, $10 billion worth of global trade was off course and stuck. Come on, we all felt that one. And it got off course, and they said the reason was a lack of visibility from the adverse weather. It led the ship to losing control and drifting. I think one of the easiest ways we drift is in the storm. We get disillusioned, we begin to question the goodness of God, and we just can't see like we used to. I remember the disciples who were caught in the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is asleep on a cushion, and the disciples woke him saying, Teacher, how many of you guys ever said this? Don't you even care if we drown? God, where are you? They're disillusioned by the storm. They, they just, they can't see. It, it's really hard for us to see when we're stuck in unbelief. Like some of you guys have been in a storm for so long, it's not even a storm, it's just life. And you, you can't even see the possibility of, sh of a shift. Like you've just settled in the storm and settled in the stuck and you're just like, man, God, I don't know. Just, just, now, and you're just, you're just going through, surviving, trying to keep your head above water. Some of you, you're just skeptical in heart. You got a lot of questions. Maybe even the last couple of years have raised a lot more questions for you. Maybe you've never believed in God before, but maybe you believed in God, but now you're in a posture of unbelief. Unbelief will keep us stuck because unbelief has a potential to keep you from even attempting to explore or understand God's ways and God's miracles. It, it can be really dangerous. In fact, in Jesus' own hometown, they were amazed at everything that he was doing. Like, they're like, this guy speaks with wisdom, power, like there's miracles happening, but he's just the carpenter's son. Like, we just can't wrap our minds around that this guy is really who he says he is. I really believe this is a word for somebody today, that you have slipped into unbelief because you are so familiar with church that, that your posture now is what you've seen is keeping you from believing what could be. And so everything looks good. Like, like you would never say, I don't have faith in God. Like, I love the Lord, all this stuff. But you have slipped into unbelief and you're stuck. You don't expect the way you used to. You don't feel that sense of mission like you used to. You feel a little bit more timid in conversation where before there was a passion to reach people. And you've slipped into an area of unbelief. 
believe. God wants you to believe again what could be. I think we get stuck, or it's hard to see when we get stuck in consumption. We're just consumed. I mean, come on. We got kids going back to school either last week or this week. It's, we're back in that season. We got work and family, hobbies. We need at least a couple hours to scroll on social media. It's so funny. Everybody laughs, but look at your time this week. Point taken. And so we, we, we have all of these things. And there is this genuine heart that says, God, I'll eventually get some time with you. Like, I'm moving. Once everything gets settled, God, I'm going to, I picture that time of prayer. I got my coffee. I got my Bible out. I haven't been there in a long time, but I'm coming, Lord, as soon as I just get these things settled. And, and we just never get there. We're living on yesterday's knowledge, on yesterday's revelation. And we've become content from just hearing from Moses, right? The people would just wait for Moses to come down the mountain. We have access. The veil has been torn. We have access into the presence of God. And so many times, listen, I, man, I, I work like hard on my messages and all those things, but don't settle for me. Don't just settle for my revelation. Like go up on the mountain. But if we're consumed, we, we just, it's so easy to miss that. And we, we can easily become like Paul's good friend, Demas, or previous good friend. And it says this, that Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life. And he has gone to Thessalonica. Like we live in a culture that's so busy, so consumed with creation. There's no time for the creator. We don't even want to think about the creator because if we think about the creator, we have to deal with our life and we don't want to deal with our life. And Demas was in this place. This word deserted, it means to utterly abandon. It has this idea of leaving somebody in a dire situation. I'm going to Thessalonica, a safe haven. Some of us are in that posture. We're just like, just wait, God, I'm going to get there. And God's like, I got a vehicle for that. Don't, whoa, I got a vehicle for that too. Stop. But we just, oh, just, just don't have time. Can I just tell you that if, there's, if we are so consumed with life that there is no time for God, can I just lovingly encourage all of us that it's not because of time. It's just because we love the things of this life more. I know it's a hard one to swallow on a Sunday morning. But it's the truth. And this one might be a little even harder, but it's good. It's hard to see when you're stuck in pride. It's hard to see, you know, when the wind is to your back. Got that anti-aging cream looking good. Look at some money in your pocket. You're in shape. Got some success. Now, all those things don't mean you're prideful. But if all those things mean everything to you, and you don't really see the need for God because you make a great God. Eh, it's prideful. And, and you realize really quickly that it doesn't work. And so there's like success and sadness many times travel the same road. That's why Paul said, I have nothing, yet I possess everything. And I am content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have learned to be content in all seasons, even though Paul a lot of times had nothing. But pride isn't just arrogance. One of the highest forms of pride is insecurity. Because insecurity is still just like arrogance. You're still full of you. See, pride says, God, I don't need you. Insecurity says, I know I need you, but you're not enough. Ooh, 
Like he's going in today. <laughs> and, and so, so either way, either way it's, it's destructive. Either way, it'll have us stuck. Yeah. When somebody just feels like, man, I'm just, I'm too bad, I'm too far. What we're saying in that moment is the cross is not enough for me. But we, we don't think like that, though, right? We feel like, you shouldn't say that. Like, have pity on me. It's like, no, I'm trying to help you. The cross is enough for you. There's room at the cross for you. And God has got greatness in store on the other side of your pain. But we, we see this rich young ruler in the Gospels, Matthew 19, and Jesus said, hey, money has a hold of your heart, so just sell it, give everything back, and come and follow me. And it said when he heard this, he went away sad. For he had so many possessions. Don't let success equal your sadness. Don't let arrogance keep you from God's best. So Jesus didn't die and Jesus did not raise for you to remain stuck or for you to settle in stuck. But we have to understand that there is a vehicle in between stuck and unstuck. There's a vehicle that builds a bridge between our ways and God's ways. And it is this vehicle of faith. Now, some of you guys are like, oh, great, another faith message. That's awesome. Okay, like, I just need some more faith. Like, yes, absolutely. And I believe God is going to speak to you because I'm not talking about faith in faith alone. Many times we have bought into the idea of, well, it's like we put our faith in faith. But, but a biblical faith is not in faith, faith alone. That's foolish. A biblical faith is faith in Christ alone, which is wisdom. But the difficulty is we get tripped up, I think, when it comes to faith because we live in a day of information and intellectualism. And so we know a lot without experiencing it for real. And then we also question everything. Recently, we went up to, um, uh, to Bass Lake and in Oakhurst, where we were staying, they have this virtual tour. It's in a theater that you can tour Yosemite. Now, Yosemite is only 20 minutes up the road. But you can pay a hundred bucks and you don't have to hike, you don't have to walk, you don't have to do anything. The chairs move. And like I'm down, like I'm cool with it. I'm not, I'm not hating on it. But Yosemite is like right there. And I just think so many times, right? We're in moments like this where this place is gonna take you where few people have been. I'll give it that. Like you get to go to the top of the mountains without doing a single thing. You don't have to hike. You don't have to sweat. You don't have to work. You don't have to pack. You don't have to camp. You can just, in 30 minutes, go to the top. It's exhilarating. You're in air condition. You never even have to walk it out yourself. The difficulty is, is I think in, in like that faith has been reduced to a concept where we can tell everybody what the mountaintop is like without having really been there ourselves. Wow. Well, how do you know? Saw it on YouTube. <laughs> well, how do you know that's true? Listen to a podcast. Like all this stuff is great. I, YouTube, podcasts. Resources, I mean, we live in the land of information, but again, we can grow really comfortable with hearing from Moses and never encountering Jesus ourselves. We can tell you what the mountaintop is like without having actually been there. And then on the intellect side, so we have a lot of knowledge without experience. And then on the intellect side, people, you know, everything is rational today. And a lot of times people try to 
rationalize Christianity out. Like, it's just not, it's not rational. It's for weak people that need a crutch, yada, yada, yada. Now, let me tell you this. Our faith in Christ is not blind faith. That was not Paul's argument. Paul's argument wasn't, hey, there, was, there might have been this man by the name of Jesus. We think he rose from the dead, yada, yada, yada. It, it was actually a, rooted in reality, not in blindness. Like when Jesus lived, he lived in public. When he died, he died in public. When he rose, he appeared to over 500 witnesses, many of which Paul's arguments, our argument at the time was like, man, many of these people are still alive. You should go ask them. So Paul, his account for Christianity wasn't blind faith. It was eyewitness account. It was verifiable. It was rational. Our faith in Christ, can I just tell you, is not irrational. However, your walk with Christ, he may cause you to or ask you to do some things that violate your reasoning. So, but we can't get those two twisted. Our faith in Christ is not blind. But sometimes our walk with him, he will ask you to do things that violate your reason. Does that make sense? Let, let me give you like a, a point in case. As we look throughout history and we verify like how else do we know that Jesus really existed or was died on the cross or was crucified? Well, you look throughout history and you look at writers of history. From Josephus, who was not a Christian, was a Jewish historian, clearly writes about Jesus. John the Baptist, Herod, James, the brother of Jesus, Ananias, the high priest, Tatticus, a Roman historian. So not a Jewish historian, but a Roman historian, speaks about Jesus' crucifixion at the hand of Pontius Pilate. Thallius um, wrote uh, throughout history in regards to Eastern Mediterranean stuff from the Trojan War of his own time, he speaks about the crucifixion. And what he was really intrigued by was the eclipse that happened when Jesus was on the cross. Like as darkness came over the land, they were trying to figure it out. Like, how is this even possible? Like the, the, it was Passover, it was a full moon. Like it just doesn't seem like it's, it's calculating. So people were talking about this stuff. Pliny the Younger mentioned Christ. Listen to what he said. He, he was the governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor. And he said that the Christians have a habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. He said they sang in alternative verses in a hymn to Christ, asked to God and bound themselves to a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, never to commit any fraud, thief or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it. I mean, how cool is that? Like this was the early church. People were talking about this throughout history. The Talmud, on the eve of Passover, Yeshua was hanged. Lucian, even though he did not believe in Christianity, he acknowledges that Jesus was crucified and that Christians worshiped him and that this was done by faith. So we see historically, it's verifiable that, it's very verifiable that Jesus really was who he says he was. But what about archeological? Well, look at, look at, these are just a small list of biblical cities that have been verified through archaeological digs. I mean, you can just look at the list. Arad, Bethel, Capernaum, Chorazin, Dan, Ephesus, Gaza. And this is a very small list. Well, what about the prophecies? Well, let's just look at, at eight of them. Now, these prophecies were predicted that the Messiah would fulfill. So before Jesus was born of the virgin, all of these were said about the Messiah to come, Jesus fulfilling all of them. Let me blow your mind for a moment. Jesus just did not fulfill, fulfill eight prophecies. He did not just fulfill 48 prophecies, but over 300. And, and so, so look at these. Born of a virgin, son of God, seed of Abraham, son of Isaac, house of David, born in Bethlehem, 
He shall be a prophet. He shall be a priest. He shall be a king. He shall judge. He would be preceded by a messenger, rejected by his own people. His side would be pierced, crucifixion. And so Peter Stoner, uh, well, uh, Peter wasn't a stoner, but that's his last name. <laughs> he was actually a scientist. And he speaks in the Moody Press in 1963, and he wanted to show that there is no coincidence with Jesus fulfilling these prophecies, and he wanted to rule out coincidence with, science, with the science of probability. And so he, he did a study. He used the modern science of probability, and he said, listen, we are going to verify eight prophecies, and what are the probabilities of these prophecies coming to pass, or one person fulfilling these prophecies. And so this would be the chance using scientific probability of one person fulfilling just eight of the prophecies. It would be one 100 quadrillion chances of one man fulfilling eight. He said it would be as if you filled the state of Texas two feet with silver dollars, mixed them all up, marked one with the Sharpie, mixed them up again, and then sent a blind man in to go and grab that one. He said that would be the probability of Jesus fulfilling that. So then he said, well, what about just 48 prophecies? Well, he said that would be one, that would be one in 10 to the 157th power. That's the number you get. I don't even know what that number is. <laughs> but over 300 prophecies Jesus fulfilled. The estimated numbers of electrons in the universe, ladies and gentlemen, is around 10 to the 79th power. So it's really evident that Jesus did not fulfill these prophecies by accident. Wow. I'm not saying that. Science is saying that. Amazing. And then we continue on science. I mean, let's talk about how before science discovered these things, the Bible spoke of them. The shape of the earth, the earth suspends in nothing, the stars are innumerable, the existence of valleys in the seas, the existence of springs and fountains in the seas, the existence of water paths and the ocean currents in the seas, the hydraulic cycle, the concept of, of entropy, and the nature of health, sanitation, and sickness. I and mean, those are just some that we've discovered, but the Bible already spoke about. Are you guys tracking with me? But then there's the Bible itself. Like, how do we know that the Bible is reliable? How do we know that we can trust the New Testament? Well, you would use a, uh, you would use a um, what do you call it? A system called historicity. It's how we verify all of our documents from history. You, you try to figure out a couple of different things. You try to figure out when it was written, how close were the copies to the original events? And how many copies do we have as we collect them from all over the world? Do they measure up? Yada, 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 right? So you can see the old, the New Testament. If you discredit that as a historical document, you have to discredit all of these. Like, basically, so much of our history would be eradicated. Because we have not only the time frame when the New Testament was written, close to the events in our favor, but over 5,600, almost 6,000 copies with the 99.5% uh, accuracy. And the only five little 0.5% variable is just for some typos, but takes nothing away from the context. And these are copies that they have pulled from all over the world to compare. A lot of people say that, well, the Bible's been rewritten so many times and translated so many times that, you know, we really can't trust it. That's a lie. It's not true. It's translated one time from the Hebrew and the Old Testament, 
and the Greek in the New Testament. We go from Greek to English. We go from Greek to German. We go from Hebrew to French. It's not, it's not this, this like telephone game that's been passed down. It's not true. That's not how we translate the Bible into different languages. Are you, are you guys tracking with me? So what am I saying? I'm saying it's, it's, it's reliable. But, but in light of all of that, the reality is this, is that our faith is not rooted in explanation, but revelation. Like our faith is rooted in who he says he is. Like because there is so much evidence, and we can talk about evidence all day long, but Jesus, listen, there is so much evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, it's all true. If he didn't rise from the dead, none of it is true. But Jesus did rise, and so we can be confident that he is good, he is faithful, he is trustworthy. And then when we realize who he is, and then the life that he calls us to, we may not have the full explanation, but we're okay with that. Why? Because we know the truth. We know he rose. We know he's alive. We know he's good. We know he's faithful. And our faith is not rooted in explanation of our circumstances, but it's rooted in who Jesus is. If your faith is rooted, let me tell you how you know the difference. I just said a lot of words. Let me tell you how you know the difference. If you get destroyed when your circumstances go wrong, your faith may not be anchored in Christ alone. What right now, if it happened would utterly destroy your world, you might have an idol in that place. And so, so a lot of this is, is fleshed out in real time when things don't go our way. Is our faith really rooted in Christ and who he says he is? And I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying, what is your anchor? And if every time a storm comes, like that big cargo ship, are you just drifting and getting smashed up on the bank consistently because there's no anchor? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith is being so assured of something that it produces a conviction on the inside of us that you cannot help but live out. It's an assurance that produces a conviction that we can't help but to live out. Faith is not saying that I trust this step can hold me. Faith is putting my full weight on the step saying, see, I told you so. It, it's totally different. And if you want to play a little bit of trivia, if you look in the Hebrew and the Greek, faith is never, it's always a verb. It's always an action. It's never just kind of caught in this realm of belief. Even the demons believe that he is and they fear and tremble at his name. But faith in him, there's an action to it, right? Noah, what did he do? He built. Abraham went. Sarah bore. Rahab welcomed the spies. Joshua marched that there's always an action tied to it. Let me say it this way, is that faith is conviction expressed in a choice. Meaning that our belief does not transfer to faith until you start to step. And I think there's times where we live in this realm of belief and we call it faith because we have some knowledge, but we still lack understanding, meaning we're not stepping out with an assurance that has a conviction that radically shapes everything in our life. And let me make it very clear. We are not saved by our actions. We are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus's work, life, death, and resurrection on the cross. But our faith in him will produce an action because there is an assurance of who he is that produces a conviction in our life that changes and reshapes everything in the way that we live. 
And so, so Gideon was one of these guys that I, I just want to highlight one thing. We're doing a two-part series because I, I don't have time to like, I was, it was going to be one message, but I'm like, we'll be here for a, a long time. Um, but, but I want to just talk about Gideon. Now, Gideon experienced all of these things. Gideon was in a place of stuck when God met him. His parents had turned their back on God, so he lived in a household of sin and idolatry. He found himself in storms because the Midianites were, were dominating them at the time. And every time they would plant a crop or they would have something good, they would come and steal it, take it, and raid it. So we knew what it was like to, you know, be beaten by storms. He struggled with unbelief. In fact, he told the Lord, he's like, man, we've heard of all your marvelous deeds, but where are you now? Like, look at, look at where we're at. He was consumed with trying to figure life out. He was threshing wheat in a wine press, in a hole in the ground. You know, when you thresh wheat, you want the wind to blow. That doesn't happen in a wine press. Gideon is just beside himself. He's afraid of the Midianites. He's hiding. He's trying to figure life out. He is consumed. And Gideon probably didn't fall on the pride of arrogance, but the pride of insecurity. As God said, man, you are a mighty warrior. He says, no, my clan is the least. Like, there's no possible way you can use me. But God said, I have a vehicle for your stuck. And it's going to impact not just you, but everybody else. And by God's grace, he built an army of 32,000 people. And then Gideon was going to learn something that I just want us to take away as we embark on this series. You're going to have to embrace this just like Gideon had to embrace it if you're going to get the most out of the series. And it's this, is that faith requires a surrender to God's perspective. It just does. Our faith in Christ is very rational. But sometimes the things he calls us to do don't make sense. Why? Because his ways are higher than our ways. He's seen from a different perspective. So he looks at Gideon and the 32,000 people and he says, you know, you have too many warriors with you. And so he encourages Gideon to cut them down. He says, everybody who's afraid, tell them to go home. 22,000 of them went, leaving 10,000 who were willing to fight. That's a lot of people that were afraid. That tells you how powerful the Midianites were. That tells you the culture of the region. That tells you how difficult this fight was. And then God does it again. He says, oh, there's still too many. Bring them down to the test them. And he basically said, those that just like throw their face in the pond, we don't want those guys. The guys that actually lap and they're, they kind of you know, take it like a dog and they're on the lookout, we, we want those guys. And it was only 300 of them. Only 300 left. So Gideon's like, well, dude, like, like we're facing a, a, a violent army here. I'm not seeing this. And so you think about Gideon ends up doing a sneak attack on these enemy forces. And we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit next week. But this, this was difficult. Looking at God's perspective takes a lot more work than sometimes we realize. Like, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's not, I mean, imagine getting this, like, 300 guys. Like, dude, are you serious? It would have been way easier to take 32,000. Let's go head to head. Let's just go for it. It takes some extra effort sometimes. But it led to an extraordinary supernatural victory. And so surrendering to God's perspective, we, we need to understand, is not a natural default. Like, I don't know everybody that's just like, oh, 300, go ahead, God, let's do it. 300, let's go. Like, like, we think we would do that. 
until God just removes a little thing from us. And we're like, oh, Lord, how am I going to make it? God's like, relax. Like, I got you. It, 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 it takes some work. Like a spouse that's, that's trying to surrender to God's perspective in their marriage, they're going to have to invest in that relationship. It's going to take some effort in order for that to get better. Or, or, or somebody who, who is stuck with a boss that doesn't get it, you might have to put some more effort into that job to gain the influence to, to lead up. Because God may have called you to stay there in the midst of. Are, are, are you guys with me? And so, so in the beginning, it may be a little bit more work, but usually the victory comes a little bit easier. It, it results in an easier victory at the end of the battle. So, so l- let me leave you with this. I recently saw this movie. Ron Howard produced it called 13 Lies. If you haven't seen it, you have to see this movie. It's, it's incredible. I'm not going to like spoil everything for you, but I'm going to spoil a little bit, so I'm sorry. Uh, you chose to come to church today, so it is what it is. Um, it's been out for a few days. should have saw it. But, it, but it's, a, it's, it's a true story about uh, 13, uh, a, a team. I, don't, I forgot it. I don't know if it was a soccer team or um, what is it? Soccer team, yeah. So they were, they were trapped. They got trapped inside of a cave in Thailand. Normally these caves you can hike in. There's some little pools of water you can swim in. They were two miles in. The downside is nobody goes in these caves during the rainy season because the cave floods. So they went, they were about two miles in and a random monsoon comes and it starts to flood. These kids get trapped in there. They send in divers and everybody is like, just to get to the kids through the caves is seven hours of diving one way. And if you know diving in caves, I have dived in the open ocean. In in tight spots, you're loaded with gear. It's like claustrophobic. Like you could feel the gravity in this movie. And so they were like, how are we going to get the kids out? Like we made it to the kids, but how are we going to actually get them out? And I'm not going to tell you how because that will like ruin the movie for you. But what I will say is they sat at a table and there was a perspective that sounded insane. That everybody rejected, they rejected, they rejected, and then finally it was the last hope. And the the leader, the governor, surrendered to the perspective. And as the story goes, they all came out alive. Can I just tell you, there is a saving on the other side of your surrender to God's perspective. There are things in your life that God wants to spare, that God wants to save, that God wants to heal, that God wants to restore. But it's going to be on his, it's going to be his way. I'm not saying his way is easy. But I'm saying the end result, you always look back and you're like, so glad every time I've surrendered to his perspective and died to mine it has been a win even in the fight but can I just tell you that the other tragic side to this is you can continue to not surrender to God's perspective and many things will probably die so I want to invite you to a posture of surrender as we embark on this series just to say, God, I'm going to die to my perspective. I'm going to look to you. I really need to know who you are. Some of you guys, you can give all the right answers, but you, you, you don't know him anymore. 
And God is inviting you to a posture of surrender. Faith requires a surrender to God's perspective. Because there's a lot of, not just your life, but there's a lot of lives on the other side of your surrender. God wants to save some things in this series. And I believe he'll do it. And our posture is just a posture of, God, your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I know, Lord, that you can get me further faster, even though it seems a little longer and harder, but I'm going to surrender to your ways. Imagine more faith. If you had more faith in his ways. We stand to your feet. Heavenly Father, I, I pray today for a posture, a heart of surrender today, God. Lord, I, I don't know where we're stuck. I, I can say honestly, we're all probably stuck somewhere. And you want to get us unstuck, and that vehicle is faith. It's faith in your ways. It's surrendering our perspective to you. And so maybe you're here today, and you're just like, man, Pastor Matt, I, I, I'm just ready to go all in with God. Maybe you're walking with him. Maybe you know him, but, but you know, and he knows that there is not a posture of surrender. Like you've surrendered some things, but not all things. So when the, the hymn says, I surrender all, really your song would be, I surrender some. And God is inviting you to the all. There's salvation on the other side of things in your life that God wants to preserve. Maybe some of you today just need to surrender your life to Jesus or rededicate your life to him for the very first time or rededicate your life to him because you just drifted. You drifted away and it's just a fresh commitment to come back home. Well, listen, I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna ask two things real quickly. If you need to surrender your life to Jesus, remember faith takes a step. I'm not gonna just pray a prayer with you right now. I'm gonna invite you as we close out the services, take a step and let our prayer team know that you want to surrender your life to Jesus today. If you want to come to the altar right now, you're welcome to come right now. But if you're just like, man, I just need to surrender. And it can be one of those three things. Maybe you need to just go all, maybe you love the Lord, you just need to go all in. A fresh surrender. Like this is, this is a step of saying, God, I'm, I'm all in. Maybe you need to rededicate your life. Maybe it's for the first time. I want to invite you to come forward. Let us pray with you and for you. In Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that as we go today, God, and as you're touching hearts and lives, that you would increase our faith. I've been praying for the gift of faith to be released on our church, God, that we would be people that trust you beyond. Lord, that we would be people, God, that know and are so assured and convicted of who you are that it shapes everything in regards to our lives. How we think, how we live, how we breathe. And I ask that you would do a deep work in this series, Lord. That we would all come out on the other side changed. Lord, you told us when we came here to Fountain, we were not to be a lake, but a river. When, when we step into the house, that we're gonna go somewhere. So take us, Lord. We're open, our hearts are open. Have your way, in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen, amen. Thank you again for tuning in to the Fountain Podcast, where our heart is to lead people to see Jesus clearly, love him deeply, and follow him wholeheartedly. You can also find more content by following us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and by downloading our app.